We began last week uh, by looking at verses 1 through 3 and the essential presence of love, where Paul begins by expressing these powerful exhibitions of what would appear to be superior levels of eloquence and abilities and prophecy and faith and commitment and even martyrdom as an initial understanding that Paul making the point that love is essential, but it must be authentic to be of any real value to others and to our personal walk with the Lord. It has to be authentic. Paul started with a list that would seem spiritually impressive. If you go back to those first few verses, having um, the tongues of men and angels. I've never even met an angel, right? So most of us have not. The tongues of men and angels, and it goes on to even willing to give our bodies to be burned, it would seem to be a spiritually impressive list and a list with ex- uh, the appearance of exceptional godliness. But yet it's possible, it is possible to be extremely devoted to works and to certain ideals that, ex- uh, that display an exterior form of righteousness and yet it be lacking an authentic love for God and an authentic love for other people. The strong motivation of fear. Fear is a strong motivator. We see that in society today. Pride. A false understanding of God. It can be just complete ignorance. All these can produce all kinds of works and effort. But if love isn't present, it's of zero profit. Paul said, it it profits me nothing. Nothing means nothing. An impressive resume of works, but all for nothing. Martin Luther, before he came to faith in Christ alone, through grace alone, as his Savior in salvation, uh, as a monk, he would whip himself. Many of you probably heard. He would whip himself incessantly to atone for sins and things like that. He would often fast great lengths of time to deprive the flesh. He would sleep. I was telling my wife that she hates cold weather. Hates cold. She can't wait for summer. He would sleep in a cold cell in the dead of winter with no blanket to freeze to gain God's favor. Paul himself had an unmatched zeal, even above his peers. Paul said he was above his peers. He had an unmatched zeal for doing what he thought were the righteous works of God. Even to execute Christians, he thought, God's really going to be impressed with this. Prior to being transformed by the gospel, and then, of course, the love of God and the Spirit of God changed Paul dramatically. So his introduction into the 13th chapter is, of course, it's given by the Holy Spirit. But it does reflect some of Paul's past life, doesn't it? Who was that devoted but lacking love. Paul could know firsthand. No, no, I could do a long list of things that looks like religious works, impressive works. Great devotion, but without love. But as we discussed last week in the introduction 
Paul was writing to the church, and he was writing to a group of born-again believers, a group that needed correction, and they needed training. But nonetheless, they had been saved by grace. So they had been given the Spirit of God, and thereby, here's the good news, if you have the Spirit of God, those of you online, those of you here tonight, if you have the Spirit of God, you have the capacity to love God and to love other people. If you have the Spirit of God. Not because there's anything good in you, but if you have the Spirit of God, you have the capacity now to love God and to love others. Not perfectly, but faithfully. Well done, good and faithful servant is what we will hear. Not good and perfect servant. So, they had this capacity through the indwelling work of the Spirit, but for that to happen, for them and for us, they needed to yield to the Spirit. We need to yield to the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16, you guys have probably all seen this verse. I say then, walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I mentioned last week that we'll keep in mind that the 13th chapter uh, has that connection to the whole epistle and the chapters before it and the chapters after it, the context of the epistle itself, all the surrounding passages. Uh, as well, of course, this 13th chapter has standalone counsel and value in the teaching on love. But in chapter 12, the chapter just prior to this chapter 13, the Spirit is mentioned, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 11 times in chapter 12. 11 times. You think that's significant? Of course it is. The, the Spirit, uh, the God desires that the work of the Spirit be ever present in the body of Christ. It underscores that the work of the Spirit in the church and in each individual is the only, only, only way that we'll see love flourish, and love will minister among us. Love is supposed to be ministering bi-directionally, just like in a marriage, but also among a group of believers. So as we jump into the second section this evening, it's with the understanding that there is the possibility, there is the possibility of a works-based life that is completely void of love. Going back to the first three verses, there's, there's a works-based life that's possible, that's void of love. But it's also with the understanding that there is a love-based life. So you can have a works-based life void of love, but it's also possible that there's a love-based life that will produce works and will actually require work. Because love is hard work, isn't it? Real life, living for Jesus, is hard work. Now, he gives us the Spirit to pull it off. But it's not easy. Why? Because authentic love follows in the footsteps of Jesus, which was a sacrificial life, a sacrificial love. Authentic love is going to follow in his footsteps. And Jesus, of course, was led by the Spirit of God to fulfill the works of God, led by the Spirit of God, to fulfill the works of God, displaying the love of God. Don't you want that to be true of your own life, those three things? Led by the Spirit, 
fulfilling the works of God, and always displaying the love of God. We saw that Sunday in John chapter 9, and we'll see it again this Sunday with the, with the part 2 uh, of that uh, story of the blind man healed. Jesus, of course, walking in the Spirit of God, fulfilling the works of God, displaying the love of God. We see all three of those just in a matter of moments. Of course, we see that everywhere in Jesus' ministry. If you're taking notes, uh, you see the title again tonight, The Effective Outworking of Love, part two, if you will, from this series. And as we'll look at these attributes uh, that we looked uh, in the verses four through seven, we'll look at these attributes one by one. Let's go ahead and start uh, with verse four. And the first of these attributes that the Holy Spirit desires in our life and that he'll be faithful to bring about not going to happen overnight, but more and more we will see these attributes flowing in our life as we're yielded to Christ and loving Him who thankfully first loved us. Amen? He thankfully first loved us and still loves us. Uh, for it's going to be impossible for us to love one another if we don't love Jesus. That's an impossible task. We have to love Remember the two commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You love God, you will love other people. Don't love God, you'll have an impossible time loving other people. So when we love other people and not love God, that'll fall apart eventually. Because you just won't have needs met and say, I, don't, I, I give up. It all starts with surrender. Back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We've looked at it a number of times over the years and even a couple times this year to present ourselves a living sacrifice. Say, Lord, I can't, uh, I look at this list, I, I, that's not really natural for me. And the Holy Spirit says, of course it's not natural. It's supernatural. You're going to need my help. So you're going to need to yield and by the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice and he will help us do it. So let's look at this first one that he will help us do. Love suffers long and is kind. The arrangement of these words speaks volumes in and of itself. I can't help but notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say love suffers long or is kind. It's love suffers long and is kind. No love. There's not going to be the ability to do that. But love, no. Real love produces both, it produces a restrain and an action. A restraining of our own desires and an action to fulfill the will and desires of God, which of course God is kind, so he has saved us to now be kind in like manner. Suffers long is the same as saying long-suffering. So you know, you'll see that word, suffers long, long-suffering. You can uh, turn the words either way, it's the same. And it means, what it means is to persevere patiently and to bravely endure misfortunes. To be patient in bearing the offense and injuries of others. To be mild and slow and avenging. This is not our nature. Not our nature. You've seen the bumper stickers. I don't get mad, I get even. You know. 
That one's kind of died down. They're, they got worse ones now. I mean, that was actually the tame stuff of this, the 80s and the 90s. Now it's like full on like bleep, bleep, bleep you know, on, the back of the light, on the back of the bumper stickers now. Uh, but it used to be at least along those lines. It's not the nature of our flesh. And, and not only as far as people that want to get even say, well, well, I'm not a person that likes to get even. I just want to, I'm done with you. If these things happen, it's over. I'm writing you off. We don't like long plus suffering in the same word, right? No one likes suffering, and long plus suffering makes it worse. Put them together. Seems like a really bad combination. How about just suffer little? Suffer a minute or two. Not long suffering, especially when it... Uh, is someone else's fault. It's always someone else's fault, isn't it? It's, gotta, it's someone else's fault. So if it's their fault, and these circumstances don't make any sense to me, why would I have to suffer this? It's certainly not long. And this can cover a lot of things, because it's not just, it's, not, it, it's emphasis is relationships, but it's not only relationships. Think about it like this. You can be in some physical or chronic pain. We've been praying, anointing with oil for going on three years now. We're going to keep doing it. I, I pray that God heals a bunch of people in CCR. I mean, just to the point you're able to tell your doctor, I don't need to see you for a long time. I would love that. But maybe, uh, and all of us in here, a lot of us in here, especially if you're over a certain age, you have certain things that are chronic, uh, you have certain pain, and yet we're still in Sometimes when not, even it's not something happening to you with a person, but you just feel not so good. And you have to remain patient and kind even when you don't feel... No one knows how bad you're feeling. Nobody knows the day you're going through. Nobody knows the migraine you're having. Nobody, and yet the Lord says, still be patient and kind. So it, it, it's heavily focused on relationships, but it's not only... Of course, then relationships always get in the way anyway because no matter how you're feeling, you're going to run into people which will require being patient, kind, long-suffering. We can be um, in those situations, and they're not easy. And then in human interactions, we can purposely, just dealing with people, we can purposely or accidentally be mistreated. Purposely mistreated, which is, really makes people mad, because you can say, they're doing this on purpose. They're doing this to spite me. They're doing this because they don't like me can be purpose, purposeful or accidentally mistreated. That happens too, where people don't even know they mistreated you. Some people are just a bull in a china shop. And you know they don't even know that they were stepping on everybody's toes. You pray that they get some self-awareness at, at some point. Um, but you can be uh, treated unfairly in life. That can happen where you truly are treated unfairly, such as at your job. I bet you everyone in here, sometime in their lifetime, from the time they were 16, when you got your first job, or today's kid's 22 or whatever, uh, but anyway, from 16 till now, I bet you everybody in here has had some point where they felt like they were mistreated or treated unfairly by a superior at work, a boss, passed over because of favoritism or whatever it may be. I experienced it. Numerous times in my lifetime. I can count them off. They're, they're still embedded in my head. I don't think they're weights, but I still remember them, those times. 
many different circumstances. But how do you respond to those circumstances? How did you respond before you were saved? Versus how do you respond after you're saved? You, you can imagine Paul's response to being mistreated before he was saved. You'd lose your ear or a head or something. Peter was the same way, right? If you mistreated Peter or Paul prior to salvation, you had a fight on your hands. Pastor Trevor was that way. People have a hard time looking at that. He was. I'm not even kidding about that. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm glad I didn't meet him earlier in life. I might not be here, you know. Instead, we're hanging out together and doing ministry together and all that kind of stuff. But how do you respond now? How does Jesus want you to respond? Patient, kind, go and pray, say, Lord, how do you want me to respond? A lot of times, just say, Lord, I'm going to pray because I don't know how to respond. And smile. And it's not faking it, it's faithing it, you know, when you do that. Now in marriage, I want to speak to marriage for a second here. Uh, I want to say if a spouse is in an abusive or dangerous situation, and that happens far too often in our society and around the world. It happens far too often in the church. I'll address that in just a second. But if a spouse is in an abusive or a dangerous situation, uh, there really can be the need. I mean, really the body of Christ, elders in the church, there really can be the need sometimes for a real separation. I mean, a separation where you're in two different places. Um, there, biblical separation may be needed if there really is abusive or some dangerous situation. Um, may be absolutely necessary for real repentance to take place, for healing to take place, for recovery to take place, for stability to take place, especially when there's children and everyone else involved. But ultimately it's for restoration to take place. Uh, when, when, If two people are believers, separation should always be for restoration. It's hard to pull it off in the unsaved world because they don't have the Holy Spirit to make any good of it. But if they really both do know the Lord, um, then there could be that need, especially again if there's abusive or dangerous situations involved. Uh, but of course that takes both parties in full surrender to Christ. And for the record, let me just be on, I am on record for this. For the record, if there's abuse, and if anyone's watching online, I don't care if they go to CCR or don't go to CCR or pondering going to CCR or maybe went to CCR, whatever. If there is abuse or intimidation or there's anger and tempers, and yelling, and cursing, and demeaning, and embarrassing, and threatening taking place. First and foremost, that is always, always sin. It's vile, number one. Number two, if the offending party is living that way, putting another person under that kind of strain, if the offending party or parties claim to be Christians... First of all, if they claim to be Christian, what an affront to Jesus. What an absolute affront to Jesus and the cross who gave his life that we would be saved and transformed and Jesus was meek and lowly in heart. So it's a total affront to Christ. Number two, what a delight it is to Satan in tearing lives apart. He loves it to tear people 
homes and lives apart. And lastly, what a horrible testimony to the unsaved world. What an absolutely horrible testimony to the unsaved world. And if anyone is doing this and says, yeah, I have some issues, but I still love my spouse. No, you don't. I have some issues, but I still love my spouse. No, you don't love your spouse. You might love yourself. You should love your spouse. And you're called to love your spouse well beyond 1 Corinthians 13. And, and let me clear, none of us are perfect. We're not talking about perfection here. We're getting, faithful is different than perfect. There's no perfect people, but there are faithful people. And we're called to be the faithful, not perfect. We don't go back and live the way that the bumper stickers I talked about earlier. We don't live that out with our tongue and our lives and our demeanor and our attitude. But harming and tearing another person down is the opposite the complete opposite of love. Amen? Harming and tearing a person down is the complete opposite of love. Jesus loves his bride. Imagine Jesus cursed his bride out. Of course not. Preposterous thought. It never happened. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's holy. And if, let me say this final point on this, if there is no repentance and change, such an individual is very likely fooling themselves to think they have a relationship with Jesus. If there's no repentance and change, Jesus said you will know a tree by its fruit. And if it keeps producing thorns, and even after it's confronted and pruned back, thorns come again, and no matter what it says, I, don't, I, I, just, I can't produce anything but thorns, then you need to go to the cross and have that first repentance that'll help take care of the rest of the repentance. That's where it starts. So, I have to say this because, you know, I've been pastoring a church now for, well, since I was by vocation for the first five and a half years, 2007, full-time since 2012. And over the years, not just in, you know, our church, but churches at large and just around the country, you see so many uh, marriages that, and you're like, what is going on here? This is not, this is not Christ-like. This is not love. And so the Lord um, is speaking through his word that there has to be a turning of these things and a repentance of these things. Now back to the wider view, back to the wider view of long-suffering. And that, you know, it's, again, some, someone can be suffering in a marriage and it has to be talked about because that's the real world that some people are living in. That's the real world the world is living in. But to the wider view of long-suffering and being kind, in many circumstances, in many varying degrees, um, people are taken for granted. You, know, you can be in a marriage where it's not abusive and you're just taken for granted. Right? Not abusive, but you're taken for granted, uh, never really thanked, never uh, really helped much, never appreciated. Now, those are not the marks of love, to be clear, but it would fall short of necessarily abusive, but certainly uh, what falls well short of love as well. Uh, the Lord may have us suffer through, of a wide variety in our lifetimes, He may have us suffer through difficult situations, difficult relationships, and periods of time that last much longer than we thought they would. Can I get an amen on that in life? In life? You know, you're knowing that these things have happened. Joseph, he spent 
Joseph, I believe, was probably a stronger believer than I was, and that would be an understatement, but Joseph spent years as a slave in a dungeon, and he had done nothing wrong. Talk about a way to develop a bitter spirit, right? Why am I in prison? All I've done is serve God, share the dreams God's given me, serve my father, uh, be kind and loving, and a slave in a dungeon. But he never developed a hatred for his brothers, did he? Because he loved God first, which allowed him to love others. He never developed a hatred for his brothers. Amazingly, he was able to treat them with kindness and forgiveness rather than revenge. And they deserved revenge, amen? They actually, a little justice would have been just fine. And he gave them mercy rather than revenge. I'll never forget the story. I had only been saved a couple of years, and I think I've probably told it four or five times in the last 17 years, but it's probably been at least four or five years since I told it before, so I'll retell it. Uh, but it's, it stuck with me. It's a true story from the church in mainland China. I, I heard it in the 90s. I don't know exactly when it took place, but um, a true story of, you know, in China they have, uh, especially in the rural areas, they have the tiered um, rice paddies. So they're tiered, and there's these little earthen retaining walls at each level, and they can fill up. You actually can take uh, well, today they have irrigation systems that go and water them, but back then you literally had to have like buckets on both sides and you had to fill it up if there wasn't rain over a certain period of time and to make sure, because rice, those rice um, patties have to stay very waterlogged and moist. And uh, one particular gentleman had become a born-again believer and um, the, the rice patty just below his was a man who was not a Christian, and what he was doing is at night he would actually breach a little bit of the wall, and all the water from that he had worked hard to fill in would actually cascade out of his down to the lower level and fill the other guy. So the other guy, had, his work was not, nothing but just knock a little hole in, let the water come down, and the other gentleman is doing all the work. And so he was kind of seeing this over a period of time, furious about it. He went to the elders of the church there in the house churches of China, and, and the elders said, let's, let's pray about it. I, they, I believe they might even fasted. They spent some time praying about it. And the elders of the, of the underground church there in China came to back to the man and said, we believe the Lord has given us the solution of what you must do. And he said, okay. Uh, is it confront him? Is it to just take him to court? Is it, what is it? He said, we believe the Lord would have you water his rice paddy area and yours every day. So he started to do that, and then, you know, sometime later, the man comes to him and says, "You know that I had been stealing from you." And he, "Oh yeah, I know." I know. And it was very frustrating. And he said, "But you have shown me something I've never seen. I've never seen anyone act that way. Can you tell me why you would do that?" And he started telling about Jesus, and the man became born again and saved. And it was the love of God, but he had to also listen to the instruction of love which was given by these more mature men in the faith. And I believe that's exactly the kind of advice the apostles would have given uh, if they were alive today. And that's still kind of the apostolic uh, kind of teaching all the way to our time. But think about the implications within the church. Um, if, remember the context here in 1 Corinthians is to the church, the implications within the church. If, brother and sister, when things, we step on each other's toes 
when we get in each other's way, when we get something wrong, we forgot to say thank you, we forgot to do it, what we said we were going to do, whatever. If we forgive and overlook, even when we're wronged, what kind of unity can God build in the body of Christ? Or can he build uh, in a family? And when we're led by the Spirit and we intentionally are kind, when others are not kind, and we overlook each other's mistakes and immaturity because we all have areas of immaturity and blind spots because we all have some blind spots and and bad days we all have some bad days i remind you we looked at this verse last week but it bears repeating again love will cover a multitude of sins and if it can cover sins it can definitely cover mistakes it can definitely cover accidents it can definitely cover i'm just not good at that yet right you ever been put in a job you weren't ready for right and everyone else is getting mad at you you're like, I'm not trying to do a bad job. I mean, Sam's one of my mentors. He told me, he goes, they put me in a specific, years ago, they gave him a high leadership position. He goes, way too soon. Because I was not ready for it at all. But love will cover a multitude of things. Moving on, uh, verse 4 as well. Love does not envy. It does not parade itself. Love does not envy. Uh, does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not parade itself. Is not puffed. Is not puffed up. Love, by the way, has more than one opposite. Yes, hate is the very clear opposite of love, but pride is also an opposite of love. Does that make sense? Hate is an opposite of love. All the, always hate is going to be an opposite of love. But pride is also an opposite of love. Lust is an opposite of love. So. Uh, love has more than one opposite. That's not true of mo- many things in life, but love, it has more than one opposite. But in the context here of chapter 13, authentic love does not say, look at how amazing I am. Which is our society today. Our politicians, our athletes, our Instagram society, our social media society, just, uh, I- again, idolizing self, but love does not say, look at how amazing I am. Whether it be about your looks, whether it be about abilities, gifts, talents, intellect, education, family, athleticism, financial means, accomplishments, anything. People will find anything to be prideful about. Even prideful that they're not prideful. Prideful about their humility course, is an oxymoron. And within the church, being puffed up and wanting to be known for ministry success, that, that's actually very, very problematic in our entire country. Lots of it. Lots of people wanting to be known for ministry success, their teaching ability, their spiritual gifts, their spiritual and theological knowledge, how many books they've written, God says, I don't care. The ministry size, how big the church is, how awesome the worship team is, how awesome this pastor is, people skills, you name it. It's very much an issue that Jesus addressed in the letters to the seven churches when he looked at Sardis, for example. They had a name. They loved their name. They just didn't love the name of God anymore. They loved their own name. God hates pride. Hates pride. 
It's what caused Satan to get thrown out of heaven. That ought to give you a really good understanding of how much God hates pride. It was the first thing that Satan tried to exalt himself, and he wanted his name greater than the name of God. Drew a third of the angelic host right out of heaven. Proverbs 8, actually I've got several verses up here. Um, just kind of give you a, a flavor of how much God hates pride. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. He hates pride. Amos 6, 8, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Americans, they are very, very prideful about their possessions, what they have, how it compares to other people. Jeremiah 13, I, I will ruin the pride of Judah. They had, they had so fall in love with themselves they'd fall out of love with God. Daniel 4.37 those who walk in pride he is able to put down not only able, he will put down many other verses this is just a tiny sampling God hates pride, the Lord will not tolerate pride in his children he'll tolerate it for a season in the lost unsaved but eventually Jesus said they'll be thrown into the fire but he won't tolerate it and his, if whom the Lord loves, he chastens. If you and I have pride, God will chasten it in our life. And that's a good thing. Hopefully he chastens it when it's a small amount of pride, not a massive amount of pride. He won't tolerate it among his children, not his people, not within the church. He wants his bride to be clean, and pride stains the bride. The Lord wants his disciples and the church to be prayed up, not puffed up. Prayed up, not puffed up easy to be puffed up. The more you pray up, you can't be puffed up because prayer gets us in a downward posture. It's one of the reasons we get on our knees. I just saw a picture today uh, of a bunch of believers in Ukraine. They were all on their knees in the snow praying. It made me even more reminded by the Lord said, keep doing what y'all are doing Sunday morning. Keep getting on your knees. If they're doing it in the Ukraine, the snow, they're on the right track praying for, interceding for their country. Pride will destroy us. It stifles unity. It stifles love. It poisons the church. It poisons the work of the gospel. Pride, even more than that, pride is the mark. It is the mark, not the only mark, but it's a major mark of the world. And we're to be saved and changed out of the world. In 1 John 2.16, well-known passage, for all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, because it's not always just, sometimes it's just lusting for money, sometimes it's lusting for power, sometimes it's sexual lust, sometimes it's lusting for you know, a name and, and fame, whatever it may be. But the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. It is the heartbeat of the world is pride. And the heartbeat of our walk with Jesus is humility, which is manifested in love. It's a complete opposite. I'm glad I have the Holy Spirit because there's no way that I could live God's way without the Holy Spirit, that, that I could say, no, I'm going to reject the pride of life. You know? Uh, my prior career, I, I was on a good track, and the Lord's like, you're going to come out of that and go be a pastor. No one is impressed when my business card says pastor in America. It was when Disney made movies in the 50s and 60s, but not anymore, unless you're a celebrity pastor. If you're just a regular serving God pastor, no one is impressed by that. But if you work for some big company or you have a big title, people are impressed. They're not impressed with the off-scouring of the people of God around the world. And even less impressed, 
get outside of America. They don't have any impression with our brothers and sisters who are serving the Lord and doing a, you know, just serving in complete um, anonymity in Caribbean islands, the heart of Africa, the Middle East, South Korea, or North Korea, China. No one even knows who they're at. And yet God's like, they are not seeking the pride of life. But we still, brother and sister, we still have our flesh. And we still have little bits of pride come up. Are you able to, is the Holy Spirit identifying when you, when you feel that pride come up, are you being able to say, hold on a second, why is this even bothering me? Oh, it's my pride. It's my pride. And we have our flesh that has to die daily, going back to that living sacrifices again. In Romans um, 7, 18, Paul says, for I know that in me, and you know, Paul was by this time on fire for the Lord, but he still knew, I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. In other words, in our flesh, our flesh can never conjure up holiness. Our flesh can never produce. It's like, if I take the battery out of this thing, no matter what I do, it's not going to advance a slide. Period. It has to have the battery in it. If I take the battery in it, I can show it to you. I don't need to because then I'm just wasting time. But if I take it out, it is not going to advance anything. If the power is in there, the Holy Spirit, then and only then can we perform the works of God. But they're, they're not in pride. They're not out of fear. They're not out of, i got to impress God. They're out of the love of God flowing through our life. But again, pride is, is always going to be there. Uh, John MacArthur, uh, I remember saying, him saying this years ago. It stuck with me. When we're done dealing with every other sin, we'll deal with pride the rest of our life. And we'll never be done with every other sin. But if we could be done with every other sin, pride would be there the rest of our life. Because there'll be something you'll be prideful about at all times. It'll be just Now, again, we can put those things to death. That's the point where we need to put them to death. I'm just saying that our flesh is not completely gone until you pass from this life into heaven and then you're sinless forevermore in eternity. You don't ever have to worry about battling the flesh and dying to the flesh and living under the Spirit. That will be our perpetual nature in heaven. Look at, look at the next one, verse 5. Um, does not behave rudely. Does not behave rudely. Some translations use the word unseemly, you might have uh, in your Bibles. It is nothing like the character of Christ to be rude, to be obnoxious, and to be inconsiderate. That is not the nature of Jesus. Jesus was on the receiving end of that kind of character. The Pharisees were constantly rude, obnoxious towards him. He was on the receiving end of that. But he always remained, Jesus always remained an example of graciousness. And when you and I are going to be lights and witnesses of Christ, we, we need to be known for graciousness, not rudeness. A rude believer has a lack of love for those around them. You know, if you're going to be rude to people, you clearly do not love the people. So a rude believer has a real lack of love for those around them. And now, with social media, there's a whole new world to be rude in. A whole gigantic world to add to more rudeness. In 
Or, or in that whole new world, we can be a light of God's grace, right? It can be the opposite. Instead of rude, we can be gracious in a whole new world. I mean, with a printing press, we got the Bible. With social media, you can either get rudeness or more light and love for the Lord. So Paul talked about using the things of this world, though is not misusing. A rude and inconsiderate person, by the way, can never and should never lead in the, in the church. You should never have ever a leader, an elder, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, anyone leading it, should ne- a rude person should not be leading. They need to get that right and taken care of and, and mature and or take it to the, to the Lord and deal with it until, uh, until that happens, they could not be or should not be uh, leading. Rude, by the way, one message to dads, rude fathers do a lot of harm in the family. Rude fathers do a whole lot of harm. Now, rude mothers can too, but I'm just saying that fathers have this massive impact. And that's why we have such a scarcity of fathers in our country today, more and more, because again, and there's other issues with that too, but I just want to make that point. Next one, does not seek its own, moving through these um, to bring, bring this to a home stretch, does not seek its own. Real love is not about attaining, but it's about giving. Uh, to be, as Paul said, poured out. Selfishness is antithetical to Christ-likeness, which was selflessness. Love gives the space in line. Love gives the space in traffic. Love gives the last cookie. Love makes the investment of time and other people. In marriage, in the family, here at church, wherever you work, with your neighbors, put others first. When William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, uh, was in the last two years of his life, and his health and his strength kept him from traveling, he couldn't go to the annual uh, convention in the 1910 uh, convention. It was actually Christmas Eve for the Salvation Army. He couldn't go to the annual meeting there in London. but, uh, But so he could exhort and inspire the Salvation Army servants. Uh, He sent a one-word telegram to all the gathered servants, and all it said was, others. It summed up his life. It summed up his life was lived for others. Moving on in verse 5, is not provoked. Do you have a short fuse? Or do you have a long and difficult to light fuse? Because of the grace of God, uh, have you received that grace to the point that um, that you're walking in that love, and you're unprovoked by either purposed or accidental or incidental slights or insults because they happen, and are you able to brush them off and say, "I love the person anyway. I'm not. I'm not." completely off the rails because of that. I've said this many times, and I really believe this, and I hope you guys take it to heart at CCR. At least, if you take it to heart here, you're going to be a great testimony for Jesus and for what he's doing here within the body of fellowship. If you don't take it to heart, find another place, please, to be mean and rude and everything else, but here we want to really exhibit what the scriptures are telling us, but Christians, I've said it many times, Christians should be the hardest people to offend. You should not be able to easily offend each other. Because we all say things we, 
oh man, that came out wrong. I shouldn't have said that. But you should be not easily offended. It should be hard, 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 really hard to offend you. And the more mature you are, the even harder it should be to offend you. Christians, this world today, anything offends people now. I mean anything. We should be the opposite. Uh, someone was, uh, I remember hearing, uh, somebody was uh, railing another, it was actually another, um, sadly, I think it was another minister, if I remember the story correctly, but was railing on Jonathan Edwards and just kind of railing on his character and everything else. And, and uh, they mentioned to Jonathan Edwards, you know so-and-so down the street said all this about you. And he said, I'm far worse than the kind sir has mentioned. He just wasn't offended by it. So that's fine. I know the grace of God, what he's done in my life. I'm way worse than he thinks I am. Number five, thinks no evil. Actually, there's two mindsets here. It, number one is not assuming the worst motives in everybody. That's part of the mindset. Not assuming the worst motives, in, especially in the body of Christ. The context here, yes, there's a lot of bad motives in the world. But in the body of Christ, we're not assuming the worst motives of one another. And the second part of the mindset is not keeping a list. Some of your Bibles actually say, keeps no record of wrong. It might even read that way in some of your Bibles. Love does not assume the worst possible suspicions in every situation. And when I see people that are suspicious of everything, I need to stay, take a step back. Because I'm like, where's your walk with Jesus that you're suspicious about every little thing with every person? And once again, it's really helpful in marriage to not be suspicious of every little thing. And it's really helpful in marriage not to keep a record of wrong. So this one's really good. Again, I, I told you we're looking at as much of the context as we can, both the personal stuff, the marriage stuff, and also the larger. Um, but authentic love does not keep a constant and growing record of wrongs and failures. And by the way, most of us don't want everyone questioning our motives and keeping a record of our mistakes. Amen? So why would we want to do that for somebody else? We don't want anyone doing that on us. I've got a dossier on all of your mistakes in life. Would you like to see it? No, I'd like to burn it, right? So just, you know, we don't want that for us. And so the Lord is saying, look, don't live that way. Number six, uh, verse six, uh, verse six, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoice in truth. Love, because it comes from a holy and righteous God, never enjoys the promotion or glamorization of sin, nor does it enjoy the downfall of people because of sin. We don't rejoice when people that are in sin, and your flesh can kind of enjoy that. And you have to say, Lord, this is wrong. I need to pray for them, not rejoice in sin or the glamorization. And our country, of course, loves to glamorize sin. Love, however, does rejoice in truth, which is why we're looking at this tonight, because we love the truth. Why you're online, why you're here is hopefully because you love truth and want to grow in truth. Even if you already love truth and know truth, you're still called to grow in truth. And so we love, we rejoice in the truth. We sing, we worship about truth because we rejoice in these things and love to grow in it. And then uh, bringing this to a close, verse 7 bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I'm just putting this in one big bucket here. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
these words bears, believes, hopes, endures. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, who's the greatest demonstration of love that the world has ever seen, and we've built our lives on him. We've built our lives on him. He's the immovable rock. We're not built on sand. We're built on him. He can bear it all. It all bears well on the rock of Christ, our steadfast. He's the cornerstone. And, our, and we're steadfast in being rooted in him. Then love will come by and through him. Same as John 15, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Bearing, this word bearing, it goes back to patiently enduring, but also involves a love that helps holding other people up. It's not just now bearing. Those of you that are moms, there's one thing when you had to bear your own, but now you have kids and you have someone else you have to help them bear up. And so bears all things is not just personal now, it's also corporate. It's also helping to bear up other people. And that's the context, that's the wider context of the passage. Understanding their needs, understanding other people. Believes all things is to know that God, who is love, is in total control of all the things, even the things that we think are chaos. We believe that he's still in control. Amen? believes all things. We look at uh, the mess of the world. We look at the mess of the news. We look at things that have happened in our life that don't even make sense. Why, Lord, did you have three things happen in the same week? We were doing good. And you say, I believe you're in total control and all things work together for good to those that are called according to his purpose. It believes that. Believes these things. Hopes all things is the knowledge that he'll bring about good through the things that we still don't understand and confuse us and even frustrate us and endures all things is to stay faithful even through the pain and even if it were to come to persecution which it already has to many of our brothers and sisters all over the world for the last 2,000 years and right now in 2022 it's not easy to live out but he's faithful to help us 1 Thessalonians 5:24. he who calls you is faithful who also do it First Corinthians, the opening chapter of this epistle, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So when he gets, by, by the time he gets to ch chapter 13, they can go back to this first chapter and say, oh, yeah, yeah, God's faithful. He'll help us live out the 13th chapter because Paul wrote at the outset, God is faithful. He's the one that's called you. None of us have been given a call to agape love in a loveless world without the promise of his help to carry it out in this fallen world. So if God said, I want you to live this way, he also said, I'll give you the helper. Remember Jesus said that? I'll bring, send you the helper, the Holy Spirit. And none of this is possible. None of this is possible without the Spirit. I opened up with Galatians 5.16, which then ends up to 5.22, which is a few verses down. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All these things come through Christ. You know, a lot of people say, I, I know the verse. All, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't mean big, amazing things, massive accomplishments. It means you can do the dying to self things. You can do the things that ah, are really hard. 
that are turning the other cheek things. That's really what Paul was saying. When you can do all things, you can do the get on your cross or take up your cross or lay down as a living sacrifice. That's what the Holy Spirit will help you do, not the accomplishment of greatness. Remember, love does not seek its own, but it seeks the glory of God, who's never going to share his glory, brother and sister. It seeks the glory of God. Remember, he hates pride. He's not going to share his glory. It seeks the glory of God and the best interest of others. Just as Jesus in John chapter 13 washed the disciples' feet, he said, this is your life, washing feet. If you looked at the 13th chapter, the whole 13th chapter is learning to wash feet in the body of Christ, in your marriage, at your work, with your neighbor, learning to wash feet and to do it with a joyful spirit and then that love you just might have a rice patty person one level below get saved that you never thought was possible amen let's close in prayer father i pray that we would surrender and grow in the agape that sacrificial love but also in the phileo that brotherly love lord that these things we hear uh, if we've heard them before lord you would just root them deeper uh, and lord all of us would be more long-suffering. The fuse would be longer. The faith would be stronger. The, the belief that you are in control of all things, which allows us to live in love because we're not worried. Perfect love cast out fear. And so, Lord, we ask that you would just uh, settle these things deep within us, that we as a church would become more unified, that pride would fade, that humility and love would flourish, and, Lord, that you would do a great work in using that uh, work to bring even more people to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Lord, we pray for marriage relationships where there's a lack of love. We pray for family relationships where there's a lack of love. We pray for individual relationships that need to be repaired. Lord, we pray that in this church that you would truly help us to be the disciples that love one another because we first love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.